paid good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Hade du tyckt om mig ändå? Vill du bli ihop med mig? Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Chris Bricklemeyer. Hello. Thank you for having me back again. Also joining us in the booth is Mr. Kyler Fay. Hello, and thanks for letting me in. Shocktober 2022 continues with a look at Thomas Alfredson's Let the Right One In. Based on the book and adapted by John Ajdve Lindqvist. Sure, it's the story of Oscar a young boy who's being picked on at school. When a vampire, Ellie, and her helper, Hakan, move into the apartment next door, things begin to change for young Oscar. We will be spoiling this film as well as the U.S. remake as we go along, so if you don't want things ruined, turn off the podcast and come back after you have seen them. Imagine that. So, Chris, when was the first time you saw Let the Right One In, and what did you think, sir? I saw it in... The theater in Somerville, and I don't remember when it played there, to be 100% honest. It's it's weird. Watch it. I was watching a little bit of it before we started, and just the, the overall feeling of it is just so... The bully was perfect, just brought me back to the seven... You know, to, to a place I my brain didn't want to go, because it was very familiar, Oscar's whole thing, but I loved the... Uh, just going into the the more of the weirder like things vampires have going on it was it was it was different and uh, it was it was fascinating and Kyler, how about yourself i came to it relatively recently well i'd read the book many years ago and i was kind of aware that the film existed and then actually when the our covid lockdown here started i'm like i got a little extra time and a lot of things on the watch list and you know how that last two weeks of March of 2020 was literally four months long. So it 
I got a lot of things watched, including this, and I found it to be mesmerizing and kind of dreamy and also similar to Chris. It kind of it got its hooks into me a little bit, having been also a 12 year old me being a bullied boy back then. And I'm like, yeah, this just kind of feels like something. I must have got my bullying out or being bullied out earlier because I remember getting the the shit kicked out of me in like second grade. I don't know how old I would have been around there. Second, third, something like that. I'm sure I got picked on a lot in junior high, but luckily I can block all that stuff out. I came to this one probably late in 2008, whenever it would have hit video, because I remember hearing a lot of really good things about it. And it didn't disappoint. There have been a lot of retakes, vampire lore, zombie lore, all the classic creatures. So there was one, what was it called? Dead Snow, I think it was, where there were zombies out in the snow. And then there was like 30 Days of Night with vampires taking advantage of the long days without any sunlight. And this kind of fits somewhere in between there, but it is so much stronger And I hadn't seen this until we were prepping for the show since 2008, 2009, whenever it hit video. And it felt like I had just watched it yesterday. Everything came back so clear. And this movie, once it gets its hooks into you, it just sticks around. There were so many amazing shots. I mean, right from the opening with Oscar and the double-paned window that makes him both blurry plus reflected twice. I just love the look of the shot. And it just goes from there. Like every shot seems to be so well thought out. I love how they keep the murders at a distance for so much of it. And it takes so long before the horror really gets in your face. And it really takes a while for us to either move closer to the bad things that are happening or for the bad things to move closer to us. That first series of shots, uh, it just establishes with really no dialogue and also not very much time, kind of the setup. So if you come into it, if you could somehow come into it knowing nothing about this film ahead of time, you're within two minutes, you're presented with an atmosphere and with a mystery. And it's just you can't look away. The script is so clever, even with the just a little shot of the drunk guy pissing outside of the apartment as Hakan is setting things up and putting the poster in the window, putting the blanket over the window. And so, of course, we'll get Yaka, I think. is Yaka? Okay. We'll get him coming back and realizing what's going on. And it's because of that one little moment of him there pissing and then remembering that poster. And I just love how they will give us these little things and not hit us over the head with them, that it is super subtle. And that fits in also just with the tone of the movie and the tone of this is spot on. I mean, that whole idea of the bleakness of winter, starting with the snow and just the small sounds, because you never think that snow has sound, but to hear the snow, it's like, wow, this is really nice. So atmospheric. It's like you wake up in that world on a, on a winter night, I guess, because it's always nighttime. The one thing in the theater that surprised me was just how perfectly winter that was. It wasn't overdone. It wasn't just like slush on the side of the road. It was just straight up proper. This is the blanket of snow for winter. And it's not made to look. Nothing in this movie is actually made to look more 
glamorous or or sharp than it really is and and it's it is it is that that was the 70s and the early 80s it was just brown and orange and snow is what i remember lots of earth tones i was a kid in wisconsin that where that's where i grew up and a wisconsin winter looks like this movie pretty much back then it doesn't snow as much up there now i'm told but uh back then it certainly did and it was kind of once it snowed once it was just kind of on the ground for the whole season same here in new england yeah but that doesn't happen anymore so so obama's talking about all of this with the global warming and that and a lot of it's a hoax it's a hoax i mean it's a money-making industry okay the winter the the utilitarianism of the buildings it's almost these buildings are almost brutalist in their architecture and they feel so oppressive i don't know how high and i don't think that either oscar or Eli live that far up but it just feels like those buildings are looming over you the whole time. I feel like they were maybe like on a second floor or something, but yeah, I get what you mean. It's like this kind of blocky, like, and, and everybody's really actually really close together, but they kind of have nothing to do with each other either. Like all the, all these characters are within this very narrow space. And it's when, when Ely arrives, then their stories start to intersect and it's in this kind of grim sort of landscape. The whole building is just like a mausoleum. You go in your spot, you don't bother anybody else, and you're good. That they do have very thin walls. Yeah, and and when you're outside, all of the windows kind of sort of form these faces that are staring at you the whole time, and it's very disconcerting. It, it it took it took a second watch for me to figure out why that was so unsettling because there's nobody else in the scene, but you're like somebody, something, something's not right. Well, there's also that weird, creepy poster that. Hawken puts in the window when they, when they first move in because like they don't care at all they're just trying to block the window so it's just a bunch of trash there but there's that there's that image of that that woman in that poster that kind of looks down and that's and that's a lack of he recognizes that spot again when he comes back and that's just kind of interesting too yeah that that person is staring down at them the whole time I like the way that when we're introduced again to Oscar at school, that he's there and there's a cop talking to the class and the policeman and almost everybody else is out of focus, like really out of focus. And you see Oscar and then you start to see the people that are going to bully him. He raises his hand and answers a question by the policeman. I know that they had been picking on him before that, but this just puts him right in their sights for this turn of bullying. Yeah, and he probably knows that's what's going to happen, but he just—he's just going to do it anyway because he's maybe past caring. He's very lonely. It does seem like that's the theme with with Hawken too. Is that well, not that he's that he's tired, but he's he's now incapable of doing his job. At first, when I first watched it, it felt like he's just given up. There's resentment or whatever, but I think it's. It, when we see him make two pretty decent mistakes, I think it's it's come down to not even that he's incompetent, he's just physically not capable anymore. Or maybe almost wants to get caught and have it be over with. It's very sad instead of comical, depending on which way you watch it, I suppose. But the last time I watched it, I went with the sad way. When he's out in the forest and murders that kid, and again, I love how we're kept at arm's length, you know, seeing them obscured by the birch trees and that beautiful winter scene. But when he is bleeding that kid and that dog comes up and the dog's just like, hey, 
what, what you doing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that's, that, that, that smells familiar. What do you got? That I find very, very funny, no matter what. He did it under under the lights, too, which also means he's been doing it for a really long time. Yeah, he know he knows how to do this. He's just ruse up this time. And for what? He forgets the blood or spills the blood. And it's like, yes. oh, my God. <laughs> he does all of it. Dude, come on. And then on. he doesn't figure it out till he's, like, on the train, like, going going back. And he's, like, repacking his stuff. He's like, oh, shit, I don't have the blood. You had one job. I'm trying to remember if we meet Ile first through that or if we get her down on the playground i want to say it's her yelling at hocken first i think you hear that first and it's really eerie because it's a it's a different voice than it later it's it's a deeper more masculine kind of sounding voice that you're hearing you see her in her the way she wants to present to oscar anyway i think for on that first playground scene i think and I have to apologize. I keep calling her Elay, even though I think she's Ellie in the book. For some reason, I listened to the book on, you know, through Audible, and the person kept calling her Elay. And I'm just like, I'm not sure why. So I apologize, but I do like how her name calls to mind the whole Elay uh, Elay Lama Sabachtani. Because there are a lot of variants in which people pronounce it, but from the Hebrew, we say Ellie, not Eli. Lama Sabatani. My God, why hast thou forsaken oh, me? Yeah. I really like that. And I want to say that she, so yeah, she definitely, either they are manipulating her voice or they are you know, using a completely different person's voice. But I want to say that through a lot of the film that her voice isn't her voice, that she's actually being dubbed by a different actress. I had read that. Yeah. But I don't, I can't say for a hundred percent. I mean, she does a great job, but I think that also helps add a little bit of strangeness to her as well. And also adds to the ambiguity as far as her gender goes. And obviously we'll talk about that as we go along, but so many interesting ways to add layers to her character or even later on when I think they do it twice when they show her as an older person, when she is licking up Oscar's blood and she raises up and it's a different person, but dressed exactly the same. That's really freaky. I'm not sure if I'm right in thinking this, but I feel like there's not a lot of e- effects in this thing, but I feel like something is going on with her eyes in, in in some scenes where she just has this presence that's just kind of unnerving all the time. Yeah, I want to say her eyes do that kind of replicant glow a couple times, but I want to say that there's even like some cat's eyes type of thing that's going on. And it's almost always when Oscar isn't looking at her. She is trying to really put that face on. And even the way if you watch how she dresses in the film, she starts to dress more like him or in people in a society as opposed to her who's just on the outskirts of society. She's completely cast off, literally a parasite on society. So it's very interesting to see how she changes the way that she dresses and that she really starts to try to fit in a lot more. Yeah, by wearing long sleeves in the middle of winter for a start, yeah. Yeah, and can you put on some shoes once in a while, too? It's, uh- <laughs> That's such a, such a good reminder that she is not natural. Just walking into the, into the hospital with no shoes. like it, They show it, but, I mean, the nurse does comment that that's the only time it's really brought up, but like it's, it's normal because what, is, what does she care what the temperature is? But that's that's also the the trap that they fall into, I would imagine. 
of just being comfortable doing your own thing and not taking time to blend in and change with the time. So the long sleeves and the, oh yeah, you guys get cold, right? Okay, me too. As they go through the time, the, the, the life of their familiar, it goes from caring a whole lot, almost not at all, and then starts over again. This is the transition phase, which is really interesting. Yeah, it doesn't even talk about how she smells in the yeah. beginning. Yeah. yeah, and it's like she's not showering or anything, especially between kills. She seems to get like more raggedy and is smelling bad and then feeds again. And then it's like, oh, the Oscar thinks I smell bad. Maybe I'll take a shower or something and then comes out looking all nice. Which means that these vampires have no problem with running water. So that's good. Right. I always thought that was one of the weirdest vampire tropes anyway. It was like, it is. That, yeah, it was that. And the, the other one where if you throw a bunch of bird seed on the ground, they have to stop and count it all because they're super OCD. And then they'll do that until the sun comes out. But yeah, weird. This totally plays into the puzzle thing with the knots and the Rubik's Cube. And isn't there a pile of salt, I believe, at one point? Like, that's one of the things is they'll count every grain because they have to solve puzzles. And I'd never seen that anywhere else. That's what notched this up, you know, once they showed the inside of Ellie's apartment. It was like, oh, okay, you guys picked up on the little stuff that always gets ignored. All right. Yeah, 100%. Because she's got that that sort of Fabergé egg-looking kind of thing that sort of collapses the way that it's told in the novel is so anxiety inducing because it, it collapses into just millions of people. Like he's describing pieces as small as iron filings or whatever. And I was just, I almost had to put the book down at that point. I'm like, no, she's in the body of a 12 year old, but she's different than say, I can't remember the kid's name. Was it Caleb from near dark or the Kristen Dunst character from interview with a vampire it is a person who has who can age inside of that body. I mean, I always found Christendon's performance in Interview with a Vampire is so great because there's something about her that is old behind her eyes. And so when she is not that little girl anymore, but this 30, 40, 50, 100, 200-year-old woman behind these eyes, she does such a great job with that. But you don't really get that from, from Ellie. It feels like she doesn't know how old she is. She talks about how she's 12, you know, more or less. She doesn't remember her birthday. She doesn't celebrate her birthday, obviously. And she doesn't seem like she's somebody who's super old inside of that body. It almost feels like it just doesn't age. And that even includes the brain. Yeah, because she doesn't ever come across as having accumulated two centuries of knowledge of the world and, you know, and acting like much older than the way she presents herself physically. But I mean, maybe that could be part of her disguise too, since she has to move among the, you know, this human society. After a couple thousand years, all of that would become second nature, wouldn't it? Pretending to be that age that you present outside. Yeah, because you would just act that way. And that's not anything I had ever considered. So that's going to. I'm going to be thinking about this for about a week now. That kid in Near Dark and then in Interview with the Vampire, like, they're annoyed that they're, like, far older than, and they're like, why am I in this kid body? And, yeah, she's, Ellie is not like that, or at least doesn't let us know that. Neither one of these characters is sexualized. There is no boning in this movie, thank goodness. Yeah. Especially with Hakan in here, but they don't seem like they're at that stage. Like, he's just concerned about will you go steady with me? And, you know, hey, I'm, I'm not a girl. Well, that's fine. Will you go steady or not? 
I had forgotten about that part until I rewatched it. And I'm like, wow, okay. That's, that was surprising to me, especially for something, you know, set in the eighties where anyway, it was just, the kid just wants to, wants to be some with somebody that likes him. Doesn't matter. I'm like, good for you, Oscar. He's deeply lonely. And this is like a chance at closeness with somebody. And he's already had the experience where, she solved the Rubik's cube and left it for him to find. And when he steps out in the morning to go to school and finds that there, it's just amazing. He has a smile that is just unbelievable. And it's the first time yet that you see this kid has capacity to feel some joy. And it's just, it's kind of nice before some more horrible shit happens. <laughs> well, and he is pretty disturbed by all this let's say that because he's got this scrapbook where he keeps all of these murder stories in there and then he gets himself a knife i think he doesn't steal it but it feels like he would have if he could have <laughs> just <laughs> I, I kept thinking oh is he shoplifting stuff because i think he shoplifts in the book in the so book can- yeah in the book he she's he, stealing stuff all the time yeah he definitely stole the knife he got or he and candy and i think even a a rubik's cube at some point too but he's he's a lot creepier in the book than the way this kid comes across in the movie but yeah it's interesting yeah he would have been a lot less easy to root for i mean if he exhibited normal behavior because when you get bullied you don't just be like okay thanks for the bullying and and move on you internalize it and it comes out some other way and i'm not saying i shoplifted stuff but when you're bullied, I, I never thought about it, but that's that's kind of the thing that happens. You gotta you gotta get it out of you. It'll just eat you up. But I'm glad they didn't include that. Yeah, they had a little bit of him with the knife and imitating Connie, the head bully, and just like squeal like a pig, and he's doing all this stuff. And I'm like, okay, glad that they didn't give us a lot more of that. And I'm glad also they cut one of the earliest bullying scenes. It was was taking place in the bathroom. I think just the threat of them and the way that mm. Connie comes across in that very first scene with him that's enough. I don't think that we need that. And I think that then when we go to the next stage of that bullying, it makes it even tougher to watch because we building up to it. I could see if somebody wants to disagree with that, that there should have been a more gradual buildup, but I was okay with it being like, this is a threat. And here's, it kind of almost makes me think like the more graphic one, the one with them and the switches or the branches, it makes me think that that's the normal thing rather than building up to it or having smaller incidents of bullying. Instead, it's no, these guys mean fucking business every single time. Connie, Patrick Ridmark or Ridmark. He was, I swear to God, I was bullied by that kid in 1982. A oh, 100%. I, similar experience. And, and it's like, and when you look at the actors in the scenes, Connie's not a big kid. There's real, there's, there, there's really no reason at all why, uh, why Oscar can't take him, but he's, he's outnumbered and he's just so psychologically beaten down that he doesn't want to try until, until Ellie tells him to hit back, which is kind of shit advice most of the time. But I was given that advice a lot. It's like, why, why don't you just hit him back? And I'm like, well, because uh, I'm too scared to do that. Because then he'll hit me, and that's not cool. I'm allergic to that. Most fancy places like this never get past a punch or two before they're broken up. You know what I'm saying? There's almost natural instinct not to upset the herd. So all I got to do is get in one good punch, play defense, and wait. You know, you're talking about the whole thing with the familiar, calling Hawken a familiar. 
and that it's kind of this transition time for Ellie, whether she knows it or not, that she's going to transition from Hawken to Oscar in this film. And that we get those ties between the characters. Like after Hawken screws up, Ellie has to go out, take care of business, kills this guy, Yaka, I think his name is. Um, I again really like this the way that it's shot again from a distance, all in silhouette. Wow. It looks really good. And then she comes back home, just like, Hey, I got dinner, but I left, left the wrapper outside. <laughs> so he's got to go take care of business and plant this body. But I love that he's using that same orange red stick that then later on Oscar uses to hit Connie across the head. Yeah, it's like the literal passing of the the baton, right? Yeah, it's very nice that they do that. And it doesn't feel, again, it doesn't feel forced. It's one of those things where it's just like, oh, did you realize that? And it's like, the first time? No, I didn't. Even though the color red in this movie is very similar to, like, say, something like The Sixth Sense, where it's like, okay, there's something red in almost every single one of these frames just to remind you of the blood and of the threat. And yeah, you talked about this whole idea of, the poster looking down. I mean, there's so much of looking and being looked at in this movie. And even the way I was talking about how the policeman was out of focus in that one shot. And then later on, I want to say when they introduced the Connie character, they, they kind of fragment things. So there, a lot of it is just like his arm and Oscar. It's like you don't even see Connie that much, but he's that much of a threat that he's, he's there, even though it's just part of him in the, in the frame. That's how your bully stays with you. Always right there in the back of your head. Oh, shit. Are they there? No. No, I'm 50 and they're not in my house. It's like, come on. Also, that framing, though, in, in that sh- in that shot, there's so much of that through the whole film because it's really kind of focused in on the kids. All the adults, especially, you don't really see that much. They're kind of they're kind of pushed to the background or or you're looking at Oscar and mom is not fully in frame. There's a. Almost to the point. Yeah, I think it kind of shows how this growing isolation that this kid is in. Yeah, there's only one adult in this whole film who seems very effective at at all, Mr. Avila, the gym teacher. But then he ends up getting called away by a ruse at the end. It's like, geez, you were supposed to be the hero. Come yeah, on. yeah, I love Mr. Avila. Up till then, it's like, eh. and he almost catches Oscar after. It's Max Connie on the head, but no, I love that, how there's the screaming from Connie after he just got hit, and then the screaming from the kids over on the shore who have found the dead body of Yaka, and it's just like, oh, that's so nice, and that he has to make that choice. Which way he's going to go? Is he going to bust Oscar, or is he going to go over here? And then in the book, he's pretty much Oscar's only real ally, to the point where he's like, here's something that doesn't happen in the movie that happens in the book. He's like, oh, you earned these kids' desks and caused all this property damage. If you want to talk about it, you can, but otherwise, hit the showers, kid. That's kind of missing from the film, because it's not quite as obvious why the violence escalates so much to the way it is. Connie and his brother are angry about something that happened that we don't see, or that was in the book anyway, which really turned, aside from Oscar whacking Connie in the head, it's there's another escalation, but that shot is so great where he's standing there with that pole. Like he can't believe that he did this and he's just like resplendent in his glory. <laughs> and then they, then the kid, you see how juvenile the whole thing is because the, the mean head bully is down on the ice screaming and crying. It's like, yeah, okay. That's what, that's what this is. I loved it from in a certain way. And then when we go to the body pulled out of the ice, 
I swear any other movie, it would have looked ridiculous, but it was chilling to see the arms sticking straight out, just frozen solid and the legs frozen solid. But if it hadn't been established, everything was just so oppressive, you would laugh out loud at it. I'm glad that they, they didn't give us a close up of the body again once it was being pulled out because it might have looked comical because of the way she had to twist his head around 360 degrees just to, as she says in the book, turn the switch, you know, make sure that that he doesn't come back as a zombie or vampire. It's kind of a nice thing. It's interesting, too, that you only see basically from Oscar's point of view. So like, yeah, a dead body was found, but there's no follow up with the cops. They don't talk to him. He's not an adult. He wouldn't have seen anything. But, you know, it's happening because it's it's reported. You could I imagine if you could read the language, it's on the newspapers but it's on the news, but it's almost like background noise because that's what it is to Oscar. All of that serial killer stuff is going on in a normal movie. That whole death of Yaka really opens up the Latka and Virginia story, which just this group of drunks that hang out at this Chinese restaurant, as well as their friend who has way too many cats, I'm glad that the movie didn't come in smell-o-vision because the way that the author describes that apartment smelling like cat piss. Yeah, it's horrifying. Poor Latka. I mean, the guy can't win at all. First, you know, Yaka gets killed by Ellie and then body buried by uh, Haka or kind of. I mean, again, Haka, way to go, dude. You know, he did his best. Did his best. Yeah. If that's not bad enough, then Virginia gets attacked. Latka's on-again, off-again girlfriend. She gets attacked and then turned into a vampire, and then gets to see her burn up on screen right in front of us. And that whole thing of her turning into a vampire, that's the most fascinating thing for me, just to see the way that she goes through. Very quickly, in just a few glimpses, you see how the trope of the vampire in the sunlight and in the thirst for blood, and and then the cat attack, which I know is universally derided as probably the the only technical flaw in what's maybe otherwise a perfect movie. But, you know, I got to say, this film does not give the viewer very many opportunities for a good laugh, right? Oh, yeah. so, so when you, when you get um, that, I've looked at it again and again, the shot where she's, she's fleeing the apartment and going down the stairs for a split second, it almost looks like it's like taxidermied animals like attached to her jacket and is just, ugh. It could have been a lot better, but, you know, there it is. I just love the way it builds with the CGI cat attacking <laughs> her and then, like, the puppet cat biting her <laughs> calf. And I'm just like, oh, my God, what is funnier? I'm, like, waiting for Toonses to come drive in a car and kill her. <laughs> and then, yeah, when she's covered with all those cats and just, like, flailing around like a man on fire or something, and then down the steps she goes. Yeah, that was pretty good. But then you compare that to the absolute horror when she's like, oh, nurse, can you open my blinds all the way? And just goes up like a fucking fireball. You're like, oh, wow, this is serious stuff. That shot is amazing. Yeah, that shit is metal as fuck. She like, <laughs> just burns up like that. It's. I think that's probably the first time I saw that kind of effect for a vampire burning up in the uh, Midnight Mass TV show more recently, they they do that like somewhat similarly, The uh, where there's like this sudden ignition. But yeah, it just looks so good. Yeah, I'm used to more like the Buffy way where they would just turn to ash and sure. turn away. 
no evidence whatsoever. It was so easy to clean up. No haka needed. It's interesting, though, because it's almost like a defense mechanism, too. If they're going to go up that big, you can't physically drag them out into the light or they'll take you with them. It's kind of that acid for blood. You know, that's why you don't go after the aliens is because even if you get them, they'll get you. We talked about how Haka is not a very good familiar slash manservant slash pedophile who fell in love with this little boy girl creature. And that's really bad. There's a lot more of that in the book for sure. Even a little trip to some dressing rooms and stuff. Oh boy. Is it different than I imagine it? Like she met him when he was little and then went from friends to father figure. It is different because she meets him just a few years prior. He's down and out. He had gotten fired from his job. He was having these urges and yeah, he's drinking himself to death and she comes over to him and, and pretty much picks him out of the gutter and says, all right, you're not going to drink anymore. You're going to serve me. Somehow she knew that he was a pedophile and really got to use that uh, as pretty much a lure because there's many times where he's just like, if I go kill this person for you, will you let me sleep with you? And I don't know if it's just sleep sleep because it feels like she doesn't let him do anything. It feels like it's literally you can be in the same bed as me. It's very dumb sub relationship. CFNM. It's super gross. I'm going to I'm going to go with um, the stuff I made up in my head about that she meets a child and grows old. That's what it feels like in the movie. Okay, good. That's what I'm sticking with. Well, and especially we'll talk about the U.S. remake later, but there's, I mean, there's a picture of them together as younger people. So that fits into your model exactly. Yeah. And I think it was, it was a smart move to, with this screenplay to just kind of strip it down to the base story and not get caught up in a lot of that stuff. Cause the, the Hawkins subplot in the book, the movie could have become just all about that if that had really, really been in there at all. So I think that was a good choice. Well, and especially that Haka comes back after she lets him drop from the window. Mm. Oh boy. Yeah. That is some hardcore splatter horror fiction there. That was the best human falling out of a window I've ever seen. Every single time my whole body crunches up, it is so brutal. That's one of those scenes that sticks in your head and it just stays there. It's just nasty. And then, and then right before that, really, when you see his face before, as that scene starts, it's, that's really the only big gore effect really in the whole, in the whole thing. I mean, for the most part, where, where and, and it's just like, oh, God, you, you, know, you kind of you kind of tell what's going to happen. And then when it actually does, it's just so unsettling. Yeah, because what we haven't said to the audience is that after Haka just keeps fucking up, he he goes out and this time feels very Freudian. and it feels like he knows he's going to fuck up. Or I'm sorry, that might have been <laughs> Kyle that said that where it just feels like he knows that he's done And you know what? I'm going to bring this big old jar of acid with me to this just in case I need to hide my face. Yeah, who does that? Like, why do do you even get a jar of acid like that? (laughs) That whole things going wrong kind of scene again, where it's even worse. That framing at the end of that, where it's the boy hanging upside down on the right hand side of the screen and hocking on the left hand side of the screen about to pour this whole jug of acid on his face. Holy fuck, man. 
yeah, that was it was super hardcore. And I just I try to imagine if I were in a similar situation for some reason, maybe I hope I could come up with a better way to dispatch myself than a pouring acid on my face and, and, and living through it. Jesus, I do like that when she shows up at the hospital and is trying to get into his room that he can invite her in. That he has to open up the window and lean out because he has no voice, which I guess means that all mute people are immune to vampires. Uh, That would follow, yeah. And I wanted to comment real quick as far as you talked about that body hitting the ground. I totally agree. I mean, it's it's not a dummy, you know, or it doesn't look like a dummy. I imagine it's all a computer effect, but the way that they don't go for the laughs and splatter him – and just that he thuds so soundly. The sound design in this movie is wonderful. Yeah, and it flips the body. And if it's CG, it's just the physics are perfect. And the dent it leaves, the dark dent or blood spot or whatever, it's horrifying. It's absolutely horrifying. In a movie with vampires, a guy hitting his head is the most horrifying thing to me. Well, it's like when Mac Murphy cuts his thumb and the thing, that's the worst thing for me in the whole movie. Why? You need your thumb. Don't cut the thumb. Don't cut the thumb. Yeah. And yeah, poor Oscar. He thinks that trying to make a blood pact with Ellie is a really good idea. Oh, man. And that's when she gets to reveal herself to him when they're down in the basement and there's blood on the floor and the hunger overcomes her. It's like intense scene after intense scene. One of the things that I like about this movie so much is that there's no scene where I'm just like, well, that could have gone. I mean, there are deleted scenes out there, at least like four or five. And I'm just like, okay, I could see that in the movie or not in the movie. But all the stuff that's in the movie right now, it needs to be there and it really flows perfectly. That scene with the blood packed in that basement room, it I almost wish that there could have been a little bit more of that set because it's really important in the novel. But in the movie, we do not have that whole B plot with uh, Tommy and his mom, the older kid that is, you know, kind of runs that is in charge of that that room, which is a, a bomb shelter room thing, I believe. Yeah, that, that was a whole other long thing that there would not have been time for in this movie. I don't think that's going to be in the TV show either. If they wanted to pad out the story, all they have to do is go back to the book because there is so much stuff that isn't there. I mean, the way that Tommy's character then plays into Stefan, who's the police detective who's also looking into all these cases. It's like, wow, you know, there, there's a whole lot of stuff. It's a very small world here in Blackenberry. Yeah, he's that douchey cop that's going to marry his, marry his mom, but um. When we get to the remake, I think there's a character in there that's kind of that. But at least he's not douchey. I mean, Elias Codius is pretty much a badass in my mind. So, yeah, especially when he's fucking James Spader. We haven't really talked about the whole Morse code thing. I love that that gets introduced and that they're able to communicate with each other. Talk about Oscar taking Hawkins' place when she comes in and Hawkins is on the bed and she's like, move, this is my wall now. And just that image of her facing the wall and just, I mean, the whole, her whole apartment obviously is very stark because they're just traveling around from place to place looking for bodies to get blood from. Man, I just love how stark that image is. What do you think about the date when he takes her to the, they go to the, to get the candy? 
I love that for a couple of reasons. Well, their interaction, I think, is great. I think these kid actors are amazing. I usually I'm not that, that into a child actor in a lot of things, but uh, these, these kids are great. And the scene is like it's cute and then also a little scary because there's that kind of bodega cat that's like in the in the window there and reacts and I love that shit. It's, pro- it's probably like a cliche, but by now, but that idea that cats or animals in general will react to something that's just like an abomination, something that is out of the natural order. And they, they like the cat understands that she's a, a problem and it's just the best. I love it. That whole thing of after she's throwing up the candy is just like, oh, can I hold you? And I'm like, oh, God, the awkwardness of a 12 year old boy. I mean, it doesn't really get much worse than that, does it? The awkwardness and obliviousness as well. The look on her face is is fantastic. Like it's like the it's like the Arrested Development thing. Why are you pressing your body against me? Right. <laughs> it's called a hug, Oscar. I love that we get to see the broken family. They don't really have the mom there as much as I thought they might. To your point, she is pretty out of focus and just missing. There's only one real nice moment between her and Oscar, and that's when they're brushing their teeth. And otherwise, it's like, okay, she just seems to be really harsh. And then his dad's supposed to be you know, the nice guy, the fun guy. And then what happens? This friend comes in and is just like, hey, let's drink. And it's like, Oscar's like, okay, I'm out of here. Which is pretty much to me, him just saying, he's starting to say goodbye to parts of his life. You know, he says goodbye to his father, not literally, but literally by just leaving. And I'm surprised. I think that that, that, moment with his mom that I was talking about is the last time that we see her. So it's kind of that nice way to end the relationship with her because he's just shedding all of these things and able to finally progress and become really part of Ellie's world after Ellie helps him out. And there's, there are parts of me where I'm just like, she is just this, you know, deus ex machina or, or satana ex machina. But just this whole thing where she almost feels like she's a figment of his imagination sometimes, just like he needed a friend so bad that she's like his Puff the Magic Dragon. Yeah, the perfect friend. Especially for a sexually confused 12-year-old boy where he's just like, my girl, boy, I don't care. Just be my friend. And oh, and vanquish my bullies too, please. That scene, I mean, obviously the, the end of the movie is what stuck with me the most out of all things, but especially, and I wish they had talked about this on the director's commentary because I really wanted to hear them talk about the little feet that go across the the surface of the pool. (laughs) Oh my God. It is so crazy. You know, because you don't see what's going on above there and the audio is all muffled because it's like you're underwater. And then that happens. And it's like, what the fuck? And you, you have to assume it's like some kind of winged beast has grabbed this kid. And is. And I really appreciate the fact that they never show her transform into something. Because like, like in the novel, let's describe she like will periodically turn into like a bad or gargoyle like creature but you see nothing but it's all implied that something's got to be flying that kid across the water it's so great and i just wonder how she dispatches the guy that's holding oscar under the water in such a way that just his arm floats down (laughs) so that scene i actually stop watched that a couple of times (laughs) because i was wondering like what the kind of the duration and where things happen and from the moment that Oscar's kind of under the water 
to when Ellie pulls him back up. It's it's only about 80 seconds. And the first minute of it is just all of that tension with the bullies. They're looking at each other like, what the fuck are we really doing this? And it's like, hey, Jimmy, we got to stop doing this. And you, know, the, you see the view of the clock. And that, that's like about a minute. And then you're back with Oscar underwater. And then that sort of eerie noise that there's some violent stuff going on up above him starts happening. And then, then you see the feet drag across the water and then that severed head falls in. And it's just so great. <laughs> Talking about how Oscar just like makes these moves, even to the point where Laka reenters the story and figures out what's going on, figures out, you know, who had turned Virginia and all of this. And then the way that Oscar pretty much is like, Hey, calls out to him, distracts him right before Ellie just dispatches. But that moment where Oscar leaves the frame and then comes back after he's locked the door, it's like, okay. You're with him now. You are with Eli. This is now you've made your final decision. You have said goodbye to mom and dad and school and all this stuff. And you are now with Ellie. This is you from here on out. And I like how this whole movie ends the way that it starts with the black and the snow and all this. And then we get that one final scene of them on the train or where you just see Oscar. But then we get that call back to the Morse code of them tapping to each other. And I have to say that the author, sometimes an author can fuck up his work worse than anybody else. My wife still will not stop talking about the Cider House rules and how great the book was and how terrible the movie was and what was John Irving doing while he was screwing up his own work. This movie, though, the writer knew exactly what needed to go. And to add that little coda of them on the train together, wow. Because that whole tapping thing is not in the book. And I was shocked because I thought for sure that was going to be there. Well, at the end of the book, as I recall, there's there's almost like eyewitness report kind of that like an angel, you know, saved him and the kid is gone. And then you have the, you know, you get to the train, but it, this adds like, more than that it's really nice and it's and after you've already had kind of two endings already it's just kind of very satisfying yeah i did like on the audio commentary where the director's like okay this is the first ending (laughs) (laughs) okay good the audio commentary was okay but i really wanted a little bit more but then at the same time i'm like these poor guys had to do this commentary twice because they also had to do it in swedish and they probably did the swedish one first screw you english speaking people We are going to take a break, and we'll be back right after these brief messages. Hi there, Faithful Projection Booth listener, Chris Stashew here. If you're looking for even more deep-dive film discussion, both old and new, on and off the cinematic beaten path, check out the Culture Cast. Every episode, I'm joined by a different guest as we traverse the cinema landscape, talking about not only our monthly theme, but also some of the year's biggest films. I'm even joined by the host of the Projection Booth, the one and only Mike White. So if you want to listen to even more conversations on film, head on over to CultureCast.com or find it on all podcatchers, both Android and iOS. As some of you may have heard, there was an incident last night. One of your recent graduates here was killed. In the meantime, we need you all to be on the lookout for any suspicious activity. You guys just moved in, huh? How do you know? I live next door to you. What happened there? Some kids from school? I'll help you. But you're a girl. 
I'm a lot stronger than you think I am. Can you hear me through the wall? Only sometimes. I found out a body a few days ago. Victim completely drained of blood. Please don't see that boy again. Where's your dad? He pissed on my dad. What was that? What was going on? of the cities. I have to go away. Maybe you got something you want to tell me? Do you think there's such a thing as evil? We are back and we're talking about let the right one in. And I do have to say, I've tried just by the way, Kyler, I know this is your episode. You know, you are our Patreon guest here, top tier regional manager, Kyler Faye here. And Jesus, man, I tried the director. I tried the writer because I know both of them speak English. I tried the cast. Then I flipped over to the other one to let me in. And I'm trying again. It's like, if only I knew somebody that worked with Matt Reeves and talked to him every week, I could not get a hold of anybody. So I apologize the lack of interviews for this episode. It's understandable. (laughs) We used to have a very short time between when the original film came out and then the remake coming out and now it seems to have gotten where it's a larger amount of time like with goodbye mommy coming out now and i think the original was what 2014 or something so we're getting a little bit longer life cycle between here but with let the right one in that was 2008 let me in was 2010 and i have to say i had never actually seen this movie before until we started to do this show because I just had no desire. I wondered what they could bring new to the story because I felt that the original was perfect. Yeah, I might not have gotten to this yet were it not for the show. I had went into it not really knowing anything about it. I did not really do any research, but I went into it with a lot of assumptions about an American remake of a European film, some of which I was surprised were, you know, I was wrong about. It's got, does some things well that I did not think it would. I was kind of excited when the credits rolled and saw that it was a Hammer film. I because I think I wasn't even aware that Hammer was back in business anyway, and and then for a vampire film too. So I thought that that was pretty cool. But and it starts in a way that was interesting because you start kind of at the at the point after after Hawkins is thrown acid on his face and those ambulances and and I'm like, okay, well this is cool. Maybe this is going to just be a straight retelling of the other movie but then you go back in time like two weeks and it kind of proceeds from there you know sort of with the essentially the same storyline chris did you watch this one would it be bad if i said no 
everybody says that it's a really great remake. And I love the original so much. If you had said absolutely you have to do this, I would have, but I don't I don't want to in a way. I want I want those two actors to be those characters. I know they have different names and stuff, but I just I just want that. I don't know. It's it's weird. I don't feel like that for any other movie. Like you want to make Ghostbusters a dozen times, I'll watch them all. I don't care if they're good or bad. But for these two characters, like I I guess I just felt so much for them in the film. I just didn't want to and plus, Chloe Grace Moretz was Hit Girl, so I see her in a different way. I have prior knowledge of of her as an actress, so I would have seen it different, and I think that would have affected it. I can really see your point, because I don't know any of the actors in Let the Right One In, but with this one, it was a who's who. I mean, with you know, you're, you're throwing out some of the greatest character actors here with Richard Jenkins and Elias Codius, and it's like, okay, and then, yeah... Chloe, I mean, I remember her when she was knee-high to a grasshopper, so have watched her grow up through these films. Somebody familiar in that role. And I think I've seen Cody Smith-McPhee, who I think does a really good job of, of Owen, but... I think the kids in this one are also, like, really great in the way they, they, they perform their roles, you know. Owen, it's a little... It's very different than the other movie, though. He doesn't seem as beaten down and and shunned and isolated as oscar does in the other movie it's sort of like yeah he's he's being bullied for whatever reason and also the bullying it's far more vicious too in this in this one like they're it's more violent and the lead bully i'm dylan mcdermott is that the actor's name plays uh <laughs> i think I dylan mcdermott is a little it, too old for that role <laughs> is that like um what am i thinking of it's like dylan Minette. Yeah, he's he's bigger. Looks like because they're in class together or whatever, they're probably in the same grade. But this this is like a this is a bigger, more physically intimidating kid, unlike the Connie character in the uh, in the other movie. And it's just kind of it's that bit of it's like a little scarier in a way that I don't I don't know how I feel about that. Well, this one is interesting too because they really go for the gender stuff. I mean, we didn't really talk about that that much with let the right one in this whole idea of. Ellie and the one shot of her where you see that she has a scar on her pubic area where she was castrated. And the book makes no bones about that. I mean, they kind of keep it as a secret for a little bit, but I'd say two thirds of the way through, we get the full rest of the story. And then what bothers me though, is then all of a sudden the author switches pronouns to he instead of she. And I'm like, you've referred to her as her this whole time. And now it, it especially, and I'm sorry to sound like an old man, it is especially confusing when now you're talking about two boys in the same room and it's, he did this, he did that. And I'm like, wait, which one is he? Now I have to keep track because if you say she and he, it's very easy to know who's doing what. So they are really playing with the gender stuff here because of the bullies constantly misgendering Owen and, you know, Oh, look at this girl, blah, blah, blah. So it's like, rather than calling him a pig, which again, I don't know if that would have translated to the U S but this whole thing of insulting Owen by misgendering him. And then now having this different gendered character with the Ellie or in this case, Abby. Yeah, to your point about the previous film where you get that little bit of a glimpse of the genital mutilation that happened. Of course, none of that in this one. And I'm not surprised. I did not expect in an American film you were even in 2010 or even now that you were going to get much of that. 
a little disappointing because this this version backs away completely from any sort of issue of gender. You have a shot where Owen, he looks, he sees something, turns away and is fine, but the viewer doesn't see it. And I guess the, the one thing I would say, though, is I expected that they were going to age up the characters. I was kind of pleased that that did not happen. I was like, surely a remake of this are going to be like 17 or something. But I was glad that didn't happen. Did you catch Richard Jenkins's name in the credits, though? The father. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah there's no Haken. And it's just the father. And I'm like, the father. Are we yeah. really supposed to believe that he's the father? I hope not. Because especially, like I said, Chris, you get to see that picture in here. Uh, Abby and him when they're roughly the same age. And I don't know. Luckily, they didn't try to de-age poor Richard Jenkins and put him in the photograph. His his name in the credits is just plausible deniability. That's all it is. A very close uncle. I liked the guy that played Haken a little bit more and let the right one in just because I couldn't tell exactly what was going on with him because I was unfamiliar with him as an actor. Whereas Richard Jenkins, I mean, I've seen him play a lovable father, like in Step Brothers, and then also a cold-blooded killer. So I'm kind of, again, used to seeing him in these roles where I'm just like, okay, I mean, I like that he gets to wear the garbage bag that's a pretty cool look doing almost a zodiac thing that's pretty cool but you know he's the same character and then i'm just like yeah richard jenkins i can really buy you slaughtering these kids not surprised the one thing that i liked about let me in that we kind of get and we talked about how it's a very close community when it comes to blackberry and let the right one in in this one and I, I don't think they're completely successful with this. And Kyler, please call me out if you think otherwise. It feels like they're going for a real Hitchcock thing when it comes to us seeing other people in this. It doesn't feel like an apartment complex. There's times where it feels like a motel. Yeah. But or like Ralph Macchio's apartments in The Karate Kid, that's kind of squat and flat. But he's kind of doing a rear window thing where we're getting to see all of these other people that live in that area. I mean, Virginia and Larry, I think, is the, the names in here. But they live in this complex. There's the muscle man who gets eaten in the tunnel. So replacing the old drunk Yaka with this muscle man, which, again, kind of enforces how strong Abby is in this movie. I'm like, OK, well, that kind of makes sense. But it feels like he's trying to set up that everyone in this apartment complex is going to be affected somehow, but then it doesn't necessarily follow through with it all the way. No, it doesn't really carry through most of those threads. I did, I did like the scene or early on, which is kind of the sort of creepiest look at Owen when he has the mask on and is looking through the telescope. And, and I thought that that, that mask was kind of translucent. It made me think of Alice, sweet Alice with the, 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 the killer and that. I thought that was pretty great. That character doesn't have that tone again, though, really later in it. So it's just there was a lot of promise there that just kind of doesn't really go anywhere. And and for a movie that is actually its runtime is actually a couple minutes longer than Let the Right One In. It seems to have a lot less story even than that. You know, the, the bar flies at the Sun Palace, like that's completely gone until all of a sudden Laka and Virginia run in from the other movie and are attacked by, uh, by Abby. And I'm like, and that, that had to be just like, I'm sure that Reeves was like, I, 
I want to burn up somebody in this hospital room and get, try my hand at that. So you had to, <laughs> so you had to set that up somehow, right? But I found a lot of what they were doing with me in up to a point. And I think I even wrote in my notes the exact point where suddenly we switch, but it felt more faithful to the adaptation. But again, I think that the writer of Let the Right One In, who also writes the book, it knows what to cut and makes the tough decisions. Whereas with Reeves here, feels like he's like, oh, well, I'm going to be more faithful to the book than even the guy who wrote the book. And it's like, all right, but now you're really writing yourself into a corner because there's one point, like I said, where it's like, all right, we are suddenly changing everything. And just like you said, uh, well, you, well, you saw Virginia with the dog earlier. So now she's suddenly going to be attacked like five feet away from the apartment building. <laughs> it's like, no, there's a whole buildup of Virginia storming out of the Chinese restaurant going down the street, getting attacked. Meanwhile, Latka's like coming out and always a step behind until he sees her over the body. But man, oh man, you just don't get that here. It's like, oh, suddenly goes from him cutting his hand and her licking the blood. And then rather than it being the old woman face in this, it's her, it's Chloe Grace Moretz with like CG type of stuff on her face. And then she jumps out of there and does a comic CGI jump up onto a tree. <laughs> and then here comes Virginia walking along with the dog and then whoop, right down. I mean, the whole thing takes like two minutes for it to happen. It's like, wow, you're really rushing here. With all the stuff that is not in that movie that was not in the original or in the book, I did notice you did get a couple more uh, references to Owen peeing himself, having that incontinence, which is, that's, I think it's about the first page of the book. They're talking about that. And then also this, his, his sweet tooth where he's after the candy all the time. Man, that, that kid really sells the now and laters, right? They're in that, they're in that pharmacy and he's like, he's like, these are my favorite. These are really good. Listeners won't be able to see this, but I have this, uh, partially consumed bulk jar of now and laters that I impulse bought during a rewatch of this movie. So yes. And I've been sharing them with my coworkers and I think it's great. So. <laughs> One of the reasons, too, why I was thinking that he's really going for rear windows, because later on, there is a moment, I'm trying to think, so it's after he learns about the fake IDs and the trinkets and stuff, because we don't have Larry as investigator, we have Elias Codius as Stefan or whatever, the, the cop, Um, so he's kind of playing two roles in this, and when he finally figures out where Abby is, you get him creeping up and the score is so Bernard Herman. It is all strings, very, very psycho. This really feels like this has to be this way. And then I, I know that even go back to let the right one in that they, that right in that moment, the director goes to an overhead shot, just kind of like Arbogast getting killed in psycho. I feel like both of these directors are really trying to channel Hitchcock with this. When you mentioned the score too, at that point, it, with the first movie, we didn't really talk about that score that much, but did you know, I noticed how much I didn't really notice it. You know, if you listen to it in isolation, it's like, it's like great, but it's, it's so subtle the way, way it's in, which is, 
Yeah, not so much the case in the in the remake, but it, it's tough to talk about this film just because the differences. You know, you've got the book, which is one thing. You've got the first movie, which is another, and it feels like those you know, on a Venn diagram that they don't share that much because it's a very long book being condensed into a pretty short movie and just telling you the real, you know, guts of the story. So we're not getting the cop and Tommy and all these things. And we're not getting a a lot of the, or any of the flashbacks to what happened to, well, to Hawken earlier, but also to Ellie when she was castrated. Okay. So, and then this one with the remake it's a little bit of the first movie. It feels, I mean, he even takes the end scene with the trunk and everything. So it's like, all right, you know, you like that so much <laughs> that we're going to use that, even though you're trying to use more of the book for a little while until you just kind of forget about it and just be like, well, you guys saw the other movie right here. Let me just redo that. Yeah. And, and so much of it was that it's like, like it's on its own. It's, it's not, it's not bad, but it's like this unnecessary remake. But I guess if, if somebody was going to remake it, I mean, this is probably about as good as you're going to get. Cause you know, I mean, somebody else might have, uh, you know, gone full blown with CGI monster and, and her co- continually turning into a, into a flying beast and stuff like that. And it would have looked absolutely stupid. So if there must be a, if there must be a remake, I'm, kind of okay with this one because the performances are all really good yeah it's not offensive at all it yeah to your point it's just kind of unnecessary i mean it, if people refuse for whatever reason to watch things in foreign languages with subtitles which i know a lot of people do this is your reader's digest version this works you know it's it's white bread go for it but yeah i, I would say it's very inoffensive but it's not you know chris you did the right thing it's not anything you need to watch it's not like we're saying oh my god then the one scene when he did this thing that wasn't in the first movie oh my gosh when he did that that was amazing because that doesn't exist unless you're in let the right one in completest you can probably you can probably skip that which though brings to mind if either of you read the 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 novella the the sequel that Lindquist wrote and i'm blanking on the title now let the old dreams die it kind of gets it kind of brings us to the ending that i was sort of always hoping for where ellie and oscar were going to be happily ever after and he's going to be a vampire too and it's all great spoiler alert it's really good does she let him grow up a little bit before it happens the, the perspective of it is entirely from really the train conductor at, at the at the end of the story right it takes this very oblique approach to getting back to, you know, the vampire story because it's kind of about him. He remembers these kids on the train and he saw something weird when they got off in Oslo. And then he's got these friends that he hangs out with. And one of them is a police investigator who's been trying to solve the mystery of the massacre at the pool for years. Then she retires and her, she and her husband are old. And then he develops really bad cancer and they end up disappearing. And the narrator finds some pictures and, and, and evidence and stuff showing these kid vampires. And apparently at this point they're in Spain or somewhere. And it's, it's implied that the, uh, that this couple has gone off to meet them, perhaps hoping to be turned also, which is kind of rad. Yeah. It was, it was, it was an interesting read, but yeah, for a while you're like, eh, does this really tie in that much? But yeah, it's, it's, it's the, uh, it's this, uh, 
police procedural where, you know, this, this cop is continually bothering the authorities with new evidence or, or, you know, or clues as to what might have happened and to where the, the establishment is like kind of sick of hearing about it and, and wants to just kind of push it aside as I'm sure would actually happen, you know, too, if, uh, if there were an incident like that. There's a lot of dead bodies by the end of the story (laughs) (laughs) and a lot of unexplained shit. I mean, we didn't even talk about how Haka comes back from the dead and tries to rape Ellie in the basement. It's like, oh, my God, that he just has this completely erect penis and barely any face just wandering around looking to fuck Ellie. It's so gross and it's and scary. There's that scene after that where, yeah, he's in the zombie Hawkin is in the total pitch black room with Tommy who's like fighting him for like, it seems like forever. And it's so scary. Yeah. If you tried to make a movie of that, you know, it'd be completely, completely different, but it's, yeah, there's a lot there at the end of the pool massacre and let the right one in. I found it interesting that the blonde kid, whose name I think was Andreas, is spared because he seems like he was never really never signed up for this to begin with. He was just kind of going along with the uh, with his friends. And I wonder if that's I wonder if that's why he didn't get ripped apart. I'm trying to think if she lets anybody live in the book. But in the movie, that character that you're talking about in that scene where they're whipping him, he busts out crying. And I'm like, wow, you know, just the emotions that are going in. And the director was saying like. That was him. You know, that wasn't somebody telling the kid, you know, cry in the scene. That was the actor breaking down. He was talking about that. I guess, yeah, the kid wasn't like directed to do that. He just did because he thought the whole, the whole thing was just so horrible that, you know, he kind of got all emotional. It's great. I'm very curious where Showtime's going to take this story when they do their series, which I think premieres this month. And so I have seen the trailers and they talk about, blah, 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 this virus. So I'm just like, oh, God, now we're going to go back to a virus. It's going to start to turn more into, like, Blade than anything else. And especially because I think now they're going to be doing some stuff with race, which might be interesting because the Oscar character is now a little African-American kid. So it's like, okay, cool. So that might be interesting. I want to say that his mom might be a cop, and then she's basically this Stefan character. So who knows what's going to happen. So, and it feels like... I I feel like they're going to eliminate the pederasty thing completely from, from this series, but I could be wrong. They might they might go there, but it feels like people still aren't ready for that. And especially because there's the whole thing of like, oh, pedophiles are, they turn people also gay and all this kind of stuff. And it's just, geez, gayness is not a, a disease that we're passing back and forth here, people. Not like vampirism. No, no. And so I'm glad that they're not going to try to conflate the two i think we already had that in true blood i just hope they don't screw it up as monumentally as the people that tried to do that missed tv series that was the worst thing i'd ever seen like they missed the mark so completely so anything above that like i'll give it a shot i haven't watched this new uh man who felt earth series i don't know if that's any good i don't know either the movie gave me such crawling under my skin feeling I just like even now just thinking about it, I'm like, oh, <laughs> that's the mark of a great movie because I don't hate it, but it definitely was. I It was probably too surreal for the time I watched it in my youth. <laughs> All right. We are going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Sarah Roberts is in jeopardy. Hey, lady. 
How about it? Stay with her. Help her. For she has begun to feel the awful horror of the hunger. John Blaylock. The hunger has given him everlasting life. Until now, pray for him. Miriam Blaylock. She feeds one day in seven on the unsuspecting, and soon she will turn into something that you will never be able to forget. No matter how hard and how long you try, fear her. What have you done to me? Forever and ever. And life signs terminate right here. beauty of Catherine Deneuve, the cruel elegance of David Bowie, the open sensuality of Susan Sarandon, combined to create a modern classic of perverse fear. Mysterious, sensual, strange, perverse, riveting. The Hunger. That's right, we'll be back next week with another vampire film, The Hunger. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Chris and Kyler. So, Kyler, what is keeping you busy these days, sir? Um, Aside from my grueling day job, I have hopefully early next year another book out, which happens to coincidentally be a vampire related uh, story too. It's its tentative title is the vampire circus, which is kind of a nod to the hammer film of that same title and kind of sort of homages a couple of the story beats and that. So that's been delayed for a while. That might be done within the next few months and actually out there. And uh, that's about it right now. If anybody wants to follow me on social media, I'm pretty much only on Twitter um, at Kyler Fay. And you can look at my uh, my books on Amazon. And Chris, what's the latest with you, sir? Well, first, I have to say that I love Vampire Circus. It's absolutely crazy. Yeah. That was, yeah. That was, that was such a surprise find. It was just, I'm going to have to watch it again now that you brought it up. It's one of those ones where you hear it and you're like, yeah, I haven't seen crazy in a while. Let me go do that. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is out of control. I love it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I definitely recommend that one. The cast is almost too big for it, but uh, the John Mulder Brown, uh, who is kind of the lead in it, this is right after the Deep End, where he was the 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 hot dog eating stocky kid in the yeah. Um, and apparently he got the role. He lied that he knew how to ride a horse because he wanted the job, and apparently uh fell off the horse at some point when he was supposed to do that. So. That's pretty cool. <laughs> if doing all these interviews over the years have taught me anything, if you get asked, can you do this on a movie? You say yes. The guy they have playing uh, Prince Namor in the Marvel movies, he didn't know how to swim. So, you know, there we go. He got the role. <laughs> but to answer your question, yes. Uh, still doing Outside the Cinema with Bill, um, who's been on the show a few times himself. And, and then, then just working, started a new job. So it's kind of. It's my second week starting tomorrow, and uh, yeah, that's fun. 
I do like this one, though. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. If you want to hear more of me shooting off my mouth, check out some of the other shows I work on, like The Shabby Detective, Dreams for Sale, The Life and Times of Captain Barney Miller, Podcast of Power, Rankin on Bass. They are all available where finer podcasts can be found. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projectionbooth. Maybe you can be like Kyler Frey. Please do it. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world.
Happy Friday.